And uh, I want to thank the Cato Institute for holding this uh, session today. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to be moderating, but uh, Ian Vasquez gave me permission to say a few words. Uh, I've been writing about the Americas, the hemisphere, uh, outside of the U.S., um, <clears throat> Canada, and our neighbors to the south uh, for 16 years at the Wall Street Journal. And um, the war on drugs has become a very big issue. Um, I, I would say, actually, the most important issue uh, facing the region uh, right now. I don't think any serious analysis can be done about our drug policy without a very clear understanding of the costs and the benefits of the current policy. And this is what I've been imploring our policymakers to think about. Um, you know, I think it's perfectly fine to say we don't want uh, children using drugs in society. We don't want to live in a drug culture. Um, in a perfect world, we would rather maybe that there were no drugs because they can damage. Some people get addicted and it causes a lot of damage to human life. But given the fact that they exist, um, that people use them, both alcohol, tobacco, and harder drugs, um, I think we have to search for a policy that causes the least harm and also where the burden of this problem is placed on people who make voluntary decisions to be involved in it. Why should the burden be on people who are innocent? And I can tell you that as, I don't want to scare any libertarians in the room, but as a social conservative and uh, also someone who believes that markets work, I'm really distraught about this policy. It makes no sense and it is imposing an enormous cost on perfectly innocent people who don't have anywhere to turn. And um, I think that in looking at the costs, um, the, one of the problems in the United States is that a lot of those costs are not borne by Americans. So we come up with this policy, then we oppose it on our neighbors, and we don't suffer the consequences because we have stronger institutions, we have different ways of dealing with the problem. So um, basically it's corrupting institutions in the region and it's causing a lot of violence because not only do the drug dealers get a lot of money because of the prohibition, but then they use it to expand their businesses which include extortion and kidnapping and so forth. Um, and I just want to say one more thing before I introduce our panel and that is that you know, from a very simple economic point, it is completely unworkable. And um, that's because there's so much money in the prohibition and there's so much demand in this country that, th th that there's just no way that you can stop that, that uh, um, transaction. And we've been at it for 70 years. And Milton Friedman once said to, pointed out to me that you know, because sometimes people will say, well, you know, murder, uh, we're, we're not getting rid of murder, and yet we don't say let's legalize murder. And I think it's really important to understand that we're talking about voluntary transactions between two parties. It's not, in, in the case of murder, of course, one party is not a voluntary participant. And um, Friedman pointed out that when you have two voluntary parties engage in a voluntary transaction, there is no way to police that without informants. 
and without uh, interfering with what you know we would in this country call civil liberties. And this is a, a fundamental problem with the war on drugs. You, it, it's just impossible to do that if you want to live in a free society. And so again, we're creating a situation, particularly in countries where institutions are weak, where that um, we're, we're trying to force that to happen, and it's causing problems not only with institutions but with civil liberties. Um, each of our speakers is going to speak for about 15 minutes, and then we will um, uh, handle questions and answers. Our first speaker this morning is Ted Galen Carpenter, who's with the Cato Institute and um, is the author of 20 books on international affairs, including Bad Neighbor Policy, Washington's Futile War on Drugs in Latin America. And I was telling Ted earlier this morning, I, I hadn't known before about this, but he is a PhD in US diplomatic history from the University of Texas. So he knows something about um, the relationship between the US, the, the importance of this in terms of um, diplomatic and uh, international affairs. So please welcome Ted Galen Carpenter. Thank you very much, Mary. Uh, one of the uh, more daunting aspects of being the first speaker on the first panel is having to follow a presentation by Jorge Castaneda. Uh, he is without a doubt uh, one of the most insightful individuals, uh, not only on this policy, but a whole range of policies. Uh, one wishes that uh, prominent opinion leaders in the United States, uh, prominent political figures, had half the insight that Jorge Castaneda has had over the years. And his presentation this morning, I thought, was absolutely magnificent. <clears throat> For most Americans, uh, since Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs uh, some four decades ago now, uh, it's more of a metaphor than a reality. But for Mexico, the war on drugs really has become a war. And it's also become a human tragedy. Uh, Professor Castaneda pointed out this morning that the best estimates are that about 44, 45,000 people have perished since President Felipe Calderon declared war on the drug cartels. There are even some estimates that are higher than that, and he is quite correct. If the current trends continue, by the time that Calderon leaves office, we'll be looking at about 55,000 fatalities. That is an enormous human tragedy. What has happened in Mexico has also led to greater concerns, uh, not just in that country, but in the United States. And increasingly, two questions are being asked. First of all, has the drug violence in Mexico uh, endangered the stability of that country? And in the extreme version of that thesis, is Mexico in danger of becoming a so-called failed state? The second question is, Mexico's violence has certainly convulsed that country, but is the violence spreading outside of Mexico's borders, 
to neighboring countries. Now, obviously, for most people in the United States, the greatest concern is, is the violence spreading to the United States. But the issue is somewhat broader than that. Now, with regard to both of those questions, I think we have a case of good news and bad news. The issue of Mexico's stability and the extreme thesis of Mexico being in danger of becoming a failed state, I think the good news is that Mexico is not on the brink of achieving that horrific status. It is not about to become a hemispheric version of Somalia. Mexico has some powerful institutions that stand as barriers to the drug cartels. Obviously, a very extensive, very powerful legal economy with uh, important corporations and other entities. Um, Mexico has the influential Catholic Church, a very important institutional and moral force. And it has a stable political system with three very capable political parties. Those are all major barriers to Mexico ever becoming a failed state. Those institutions are not about to cede the turf to the drug cartels. Yet even here, there's a mixture of bad news with the good. There is no question that the cartels are becoming more and more powerful. Uh, there are times when Felipe Calderon's government seems to operate in a parallel universe, one in which the cartels are on the run and that their growing level of violence is actually a sign of weakness. I'm reminded of uh, Sigmund Freud's statement that sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Sometimes a rising level of violence is not symbolic of desperation on the part of organizations like the drug cartels. It is a sign of growing boldness and growing power. And that is, I believe, what we are seeing in Mexico today. There are cities, particularly along the border with the United States, where the government's authority is precarious at best, where governmental uh, officials and security forces uh, enter into these cities only in force. They are not showing a high level of confidence and control. And that uh, problem is spreading rapidly outside the immediate border cities like Tijuana, like Ciudad Juarez that have been for several years the epicenter of uh, drug trafficking and drug-related violence. We're seeing the violence spread to places like Monterrey, which at one time was considered one of the most peaceful cities, not just in Mexico, but in all of Latin America, a city that is very much the economic engine of Mexico. We're seeing the violence even spread to uh, some of the more prominent tourist areas, uh, Acapulco for one, has uh, experienced some uh, really ugly episodes of violence from the cartels. And the uh, presence of the cartels has grown to the point where some very cynical residents refer to the city now as narcopuco. This is not an encouraging sign. I think there is at least the danger that we could see the cartels become um, 
parallel institution exercising parallel sovereignty in some portions of Mexico. That's not the danger of a full-blown failed state, but it's certainly an extremely worrisome development. What about the spread of violence outside of Mexico's borders? Well, to this point, uh, the, the uh, spreading of violence to the United States has been quite limited, and I think to the extent that uh, news media focuses on that problem, there's been a tendency to, to hype the danger. Uh, the reality is most uh, southwestern communities in the United States still have violent crime rates that are very low, in fact, uh, in many cases, lower than the national average. There has not been a dramatic spike in violence in most cases. Yet, even here, there is some bad news. There is no question, and I can tell you, uh, now being based out of Austin, Texas, and talking to people who live in South Texas along the border with Mexico, that ranchers and farmers are more and more worried about the people who are entering U.S. territory from Mexico, and they tell me more and more and more of these people are not uh, simple immigrants looking for a better life in the United States. They are clearly cartel operatives. Uh, they are not shy about using intimidation, um, using outright threats against people who might get in the way of a drug shipment coming through the territory in South Texas. I've heard the same thing from people in the borderlands of New Mexico and Arizona. Not a huge problem yet, still primarily a localized problem, but one that has obviously some menacing and worrisome elements. The spread of violence and cartel power has generally not been northward into the United States. It has been southward into Central America. And here we had better start worrying, worrying a lot. Because unlike Mexico, that has these legal institutions that present powerful barriers to the power of the cartels, those institutions are all much, much weaker in the Central American countries, and the cartels are setting up shop in those countries. I'll give you just one example of the extent of the danger, a comment made by a leader of one of the Central American countries said that his government in 2010 had captured property uh, from the cartels in various raids to the total of some $12 billion. This is in one year. He said uh, uh, just a number of years earlier, the total had been about $1 billion. The $12 billion figure, he emphasized, was so significant because that was twice the annual budget of the national government in his country. The cartels are already a very powerful force in Guatemala, in Honduras, and they're beginning to extend their power into other Central American countries. Those are much weaker political entities, much more vulnerable, and Central America that has been off the U.S. political and security radar since the end of the Cold War, I think we'll be making a prominent reappearance in the next few years. This is already a serious problem. 
it is likely to develop into a very big problem. The cartels may have already made the decision that Central America, rather than Mexico, could be their primary base of operations going forward. So what do we do about this problem, the growing clout of the cartels and the spreading of their influence? Well, there have been a number of uh, solutions proposed, some of which are just utterly bogus. My two favorites in, in that category, one on the Mexican side of the border, one on the U.S. side, is, first of all, the favorite uh, panacea of the Calderon government, stop the southward flow of guns from the United States. And supposedly, if this can be done, if we can shut down gun shops and gun shows in the southwestern United States. Uh, the cartels, I guess, will be denuded of their weapons and their, po their power will decline rapidly. Uh, this, is, to be blunt about it, is nothing more than a scapegoat. Uh, the cartels have no great trouble getting all the armaments they need. Uh, there is an extensive lucrative black and gray market in firearms globally. Uh, many of the arms that they have obtained already have come from arsenals in the Central American countries, uh, arsenals filled by the United States during the 1980s when we were battling uh, left-wing insurgents, and just generally on the global uh, illicit market in firearms. After all, we're talking about organizations that make their entire living operating in a black market. Do you think that given the billions of dollars in resources at their disposal that they are dependent on gun shows in Arizona or New Mexico or Texas? Hardly. And I think the Calderon government at heart understands that, but it's, it's good politics to pretend otherwise. The other utterly bogus so-called solution is on the U.S. side to somehow seal the border I've always asked proponents of that, well, what exactly do you have in mind? I mean, do, do we visualize a North American version of the Berlin Wall with uh, gun turrets up there uh, threatening to blow away anyone who dares try to come across the border? Uh, this is a massive border. We can't possibly seal it. And uh, it would be horribly disruptive to the extensive legal commerce that exists between Mexico and the United States to even make that attempt had other suggestions that have greater plausibility. One would be uh, to reach an accommodation with the cartels, what has often been derided as an appeasement policy, but essentially to try to go back to the period before 2006 or even a bit further back to the period of one-party domination in Mexico by the Institutional Revolutionary Party. Those proposals at least have some merit as, as some potential to dampen the violence but I believe they would be band-aid solutions. First of all, too much politically has changed in Mexico to have a reliable system of accommodation between the government and the cartels. For one thing, you now have a multi-party system in Mexico with office holders from different parties at different levels of government. It's not a simple bilateral, uh, albeit corrupt, arrangement anymore. The other solution I've heard is to use the Columbia model. As I point out in uh, my paper, uh, that so-called successful model was nearly, uh, not nearly as complete or as successful as portrayed. 
And I think there's some big problems that have emerged with that model. The only lasting definitive solution is to bite the bullet and adopt a strategy that defunds the cartels. And that means legalization of currently illegal drugs. And I want to be very blunt about this. This means comprehensive legalization of all drugs. It means legalizing not just the use of drugs, possession of drugs. It means legalizing the production, transportation, and sale of drugs. Without that, that extensive black market premium, roughly 90% of the retail price of most drugs will still exist. The illegality and the money that can be derived from that will be an irresistible magnet to the most violence-prone criminal elements in society. We saw that pattern with the prohibition of alcohol in the United States. When prohibition was in effect, the alcohol trade was controlled by the likes of Al Capone and Dutch Schultz. Today, with alcohol legal, it's controlled by the likes of Anheuser-Busch, Gallo Wines, and Jack Daniels Distillery. Yes, we have problems with alcoholism, drunk driving, and so on. Legalization is not a panacea. I would be the first to concede that point. But could anyone argue that the prohibition system was superior to the system we have today, given all the corruption and violence that alcohol prohibition spawned? I can't imagine a rational person, at least not one outside the Drug Enforcement Administration, making that argument. Legalization would not end the cartel threat, but it would be a big blow to the revenue flows to those organizations. Estimates are that the cartels in Mexico get anywhere from $30 billion to $65 billion a year from the drug trade. Most of that is due to the black market premium. If we legalize drugs in the United States, and let's remember the U.S. is the 800-pound gorilla in the international system on this issue and many others, that would be a huge blow to the cartels. It might not put them out of business, but it would make them far weaker than they are now. We owe that to not just ourselves, but we owe it to Mexico and our other neighbors in the hemisphere. We have been asking them to do the impossible and it has created a massive tragedy for them. It's time to stop asking them to do that. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. If you want to understand the, the economics and politics of, of prohibition, the PBS special that was just ran in the fall on prohibition is a really good way to understand the war on drugs because it's exactly the same set of economic and, and political problems. And again, coming back to my point that I, I think being against the drug war is actually a conservative point of view because conservatives believe in personal responsibility and freedom and, and don't believe that the nanny state 
is the solution to uh, making bad decisions. And if you look at the alcohol prohibition uh, history, you'll see that uh, it was progressives who insisted on alcohol prohibition because they believed exactly that, that the state could keep us from making bad decisions. So um, I think William F. Buckley, of course, was the champion for social conservatives on this issue. And um, I, I actually don't think that it can change until, I don't think it's something that President Obama can do. I think it's something that a conservative is going to have to do for all the reasons that uh, Ted just described. Our second speaker this morning is uh, Roberto Beto O'Rourke, uh, who was the District 8 representative of El Paso, Texas for two consecutive terms from 2005 to 2010. I got to know Beto because uh, he was brave enough to propose at the city council that the city of El Paso have a discussion about legalizing drugs. Um, you know, we all know how politically incorrect that is, but of course people who live in El Paso see Juarez as their sister city. In fact, it's really just one big city, uh, and um, it's a big binational city, and, and people in El Paso care about what's happening in Juarez. And Beto was very courageous in raising, raising this issue and asking for an honest and open debate about um, what the merits of legalization would be. Uh, unfortunately, um, the U.S. representative for uh, El Paso, Texas, Sylvester Reyes, a Democrat in Congress, uh, was against that. And uh, when the mayor vetoed the city council's uh, resolution, uh, they needed six votes to override that resolution. This is, mind you, just to have a discussion. That's all this was, a discussion. And um, members of the city council started getting phone calls from Washington telling them that if they dared have a discussion, uh, they would uh, lose stimulus funding. So that's how um, primitive this, uh, we are in this, in this, um, in this struggle, that we, we, we're not even really allowed to talk about it or if, if we, we do, we're accused of, um, of somehow having, uh, wanting to embrace that, the culture. Uh, Beto is a graduate of Columbia University and also is the author of a new book, co-author of a new book, Dealing Death and Drugs, A Rational Argument for the End to, to the Prohibition on Marijuana, which uh, is coming out um, this fall. Please welcome Beto O'Rourke. Good morning. It's a uh, really big honor to be here, uh, to be on this panel uh, with, with these fellow panelists, and to uh, hear someone like uh, former Foreign Secretary Castaneda this morning. And so I appreciate the, the Cato Institute uh, and want to thank them for the invitation to be with you here today. As Mary said, I used to be on the City Council in El Paso, Texas. I was born and raised there. Uh, El Paso, for those of you who don't know, uh, sits across the Rio Grande from Juarez, Mexico. And we're really two parts of the largest binational community in the world. There are about three million people who live in this pass or this valley uh, in El Paso, Juarez. Our economies, our cultures, our histories, our families are all interconnected and interdependent. For example, about $70 billion in U.S.-Mexico trade passes through our ports of entry every year. That's about 20% of all trade between the two countries. There are 7 million crossers 
who in pedestrian or vehicle lines cross our international bridges every year, and the Juarezans and other Mexican nationals who come over, who come north, spend about $1.5 billion uh, in El Paso's economy every year. And, and conservatively speaking, and this is an estimate from the uh, Federal Reserve Board Dallas branch, there are about 50,000 jobs in a city of 800,000 in El Paso, 50,000 jobs that are dependent on all that cross-border trade, commerce, and retail customers who, who cross those bridges. And, and the incalculable part of our relationship, the families, um, the culture, um, the history, is obviously harder to quantify, um, but is just as or, or more important. So when in 2008, uh, more than 1,600 people were brutally murdered in Juarez in the most horrific fashion, the most terroristic manner conceivable, everyone took note. The previous year, in 2007, a little over 300 people uh, had been killed in Juarez, and that was considered a significant spike in violence from the year before. And so many of us began to ask, you know, why is this happening? What's going on? Uh, because uh, from a, a moral imperative, when people are dying in your community, or a self-interested motive of your economy and the economic and jobs driver in your community is at stake, you want to find out what's going on. And it became obvious to many of us, and, and probably obvious to everyone in this room, that the drug war, the consumption and demand for drugs in the United States, the policies of prohibition here, and then the complementary war that was launched by President Calderon in 2006 had a lot to do with what was going on. So in 2009, as, as Mary described, when a citizen commission came forward and presented a resolution uh, asking that the governments of the United States and Mexico do something to put an end to this problem and to stop the deaths and killing and terrorism in Ciudad Juarez. The City Council considered it and I offered an amendment to the resolution that we have an open and honest dialogue about ending the war on drugs. And, and that's about as much as I knew about it. I'd never thought about the drug war. Uh, it was at best an, an abstraction. I knew there were narcos in Ciudad Juarez. There had been spikes in violence in the past as I grew up uh, in the community, but they always uh, seemed to pass and were almost like acts of, of nature or God that you waited to uh, move along and then life continued as normal. And so when this resolution came forward and we offered this amendment, it was surprisingly adopted and passed by the entire city council of the city of El Paso, all eight of us. And, and you all probably know how politics work in your hometown. For eight of us to agree on what to name a street or to uh, what rate to set the, the taxes in our community is a major battle. So for us to, all eight of us, agree on perhaps the most politically charged topic of our time really says something about the level of desperation that we felt in El Paso and Ciudad Juarez and tells you about the vacuum in leadership uh, that we found from Washington, D.C. and Mexico City. You, know, this, you don't want your city councils weighing in on issues like this typically, but in the absence of any other leadership, we chose to do it. And as Mary said, we received a lot of pressure, most notably from our congressmen, to stop this. And the threat was, and it's the threat that we heard the former foreign secretary talk about in Mexico, and we know other Latin American leaders face this, the threat in El Paso, Texas, the third poorest city in the United States, one of the zip codes I represent, the average per capita income is $6,700 a year. The threat was your federal funding will be cut off 
for the projects in your districts, in your city, if you continue with this proposal. Mind you, it was just to discuss it. It was not, you know, we don't have the unilateral authority to legalize marijuana in El Paso, Texas. We just wanted the governments of these two countries and in our communities to have this discussion because obviously this was an input to the violence. We lost that vote when we tried to override the mayor's veto, uh, as, as Mary pointed out, and life went on. And, and one of the uh, cold comforts offered by the congressman was, uh, there were actually two. One is, this is just bad people killing bad people. And, and he compared it to a movie that I haven't seen, but he said it's, the, it's like this movie, The Last Man Standing. We're just gonna let them kill each other off and ultimately there will be one left standing and, and then life can go on. And the other thing he said, and this is January of 2009, he said, give this about six months and it'll blow over. Well, obviously it didn't blow over. There were 1,600 killed in 2008. There were 2,700 murdered in 2009. 3,111 murdered in 2010. So it obviously got much, much worse. And this was despite the intervention of the federal uh, authorities in terms of the Army. Uh, this was despite um, firing police chiefs and hiring new police chiefs. This was despite every single effort made by the municipal and national governments uh, to try to stem the violence in Ciudad Juarez. And the question came up earlier with Mr. Castaneda about whether there was any real fear of Mexico being a failed state and whether the cartels ever really assumed any territory. And I probably agree with his contention that prior to 2006, um, that was not the case. But I can just tell you anecdotally that the mayor of Ciudad Juarez lived in El Paso, Texas, Mayor Reyes Feliz, um, once this drug war started after 2006. And, and you have to really think when in human history has the elected head of a city not lived in the city that he's there to run and not only not lived in that city, but lived in an, an entirely different country altogether. And that was the case in Juarez during the term of Mayor Reyes Feliz. When you're, when you're speaking in such large numbers, 1,600, 2,700, 3,100, um, these people, these lives can become abstractions to some of us. And they certainly are uh, for the, the federal governments of the United States and Mexico. And when you have the uh, Attorney General of Mexico, Medina Mora, saying that all of these deaths represent the weakness, the decomposition, and the deterioration of the cartels, when you have his counterpart here, or actually the head of the DEA in the United States, come to El Paso, Texas, where all this is happening, and say, all these murders are a sign of success. When you hear this kind of Orwellian doublespeak where death equals victory, then you, you really have to, to question your most basic assumptions about who's leading, uh, who's following, and what you can expect from the policies in place. And that's why, interestingly enough, the border, a city council member, an entire city council in El Paso, Texas, decided and basically were forced to take the lead on a very controversial issue. But it's an issue whose time has come, very clearly, given this conference, given the Gallup poll that was cited earlier, Given the comments by President Calderon, the person who launched this drug war, who very recently said that we need to start exploring market alternatives, um, it's, it's very clear where we're going. The case that, that makes this more human and less of an abstraction for me is the case of 
Raul Ramirez, who in 2009 uh, was traveling with his father in the Anapra neighborhood. Uh, my wife Amy, who's here with me, and I both live in Sunset Heights, which is a neighborhood in El Paso that was founded by uh, Porfirio Diaz loyalists during the Mexican Revolution, which, by the way, was planned, headquartered, and launched from El Paso, Texas. And the Battle of Juarez was one of the truly decisive uh, battles during that revolution. And these loyalists who left Mexico and Juarez came and settled Sunset Heights, where we live. And in fact, we live right off of Porfirio Diaz Street, probably one of the few neighborhoods in the world uh, named after the former dictator. And from that street, I can see the Anapra neighborhood where Raul Ramirez was driving on November 13, 2009 with his father. And Raul was a true fronterizo. He lived his life on both sides of the border. His parents lived in Juarez. He spent the school week in El Paso going to Glen Cove Elementary in El Paso, Texas, and then on the weekends would, would spend that time with his family. And as they were driving through the Anapra neighborhood, gunmen approached uh, his father's car in a separate car, uh, opened fire, killing his father almost instantly. And as the car rolled to a stop in a traffic circle that I can see from my house, uh, Raul opens the door, he's seven years old, opens the door and runs for his life. And after the gunmen have checked to make sure that his father's dead, they pursue him, shoot him in the back, and he dies literally hundreds of feet from the U.S.-Mexico border. So when the drug war and these deaths um, and, and the horrible terrorism that we see happening in Mexico uh, and even the deaths in our U.S. inner cities become abstractions, um, those of us who live in the border and see this happening day in and day out know that it's not and know that it's one of the most cataclysmic, most terrible things to happen in our community in its entire, in, in its entire history. And that's why we have chosen to, to speak out. That's why I'm here today speaking to you. And that's why I will do everything in my power to end this drug war, because it's literally killing our cities. And I thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Thanks. Thank you, Beto. I'm reminded in listening to that, I've uh, often been in communication with Beto and, and heard the, the sorrow and distress um, coming from El Paso about innocent people who have been killed. Um, the Mexican government and a lot of defenders of the war on drugs like to say, well, you know, don't worry because all these people are, are just gangsters killing gangsters. And yet Mexico admits that only something like 3% of the murders in what is have been solved. So <laughs> if they haven't been solved, it's impossible to say who did the killing and who's dying. So it, uh, I think that's a, um, an excuse that uh, doesn't quite hold up to the facts. Um, we were supposed to have uh, Bruce Bagley with us this, after, uh, this morning, but unfortunately, for personal reasons, he had to cancel. But we're lucky enough um, that Peter Hakem has agreed to join us um, Peter is President Emeritus and a Senior Fellow at the Inter-American Dialogue. And from 1993 to 2010, he, he actually was the President at the Inter-American Dialogue. Um, he's written tons of things on, on the hemisphere. He's a, a specialist in the Americas. And he's the author of the Inter-American Dialogue Report, which is titled Rethinking U.S. Drug Policy. Peter?
Thank you very, very much. I uh, greatly appreciate uh, this opportunity, although it uh, came, uh, even if it only came 24 hours ago. Uh, I was asked uh, primarily to talk about Central America, and uh, Ted Carpenter uh, has said most or some portion of what I, I, I would say. I think I only disagree with him on one point, and uh, it'd be worth discussing, is how much money really accrues to the uh, drug uh, gangs, the cartels in Mexico and in Central America. I think that that's an issue that's worth talking about because if you're talking about $12 billion in property being, uh, that's an overwhelming amount in Central America, as he pointed out. Uh, I, my, my own guess is that it's quite a bit less, but that, that's, uh, uh, I just wanted to point out that difference at the outset because uh, I just couldn't find any other way to put a positive spin on what I was going to say. Uh, uh, that's probably the most positive thing you'll hear from me. And, and let me just say that my training is in math and physics, so I like to look for solutions to problems, and I really don't have any answers here. Uh, uh, I do hope that some people here do find holes in my arguments or new ideas or have something uh, more positive to say about this. I must admit that in many ways I'm even more pessimistic than I was during the 1980s in Central America. Uh, during the civil wars, military rule, uh, a lot of viciousness then, but somehow one could see what might follow. One could see, have a vision for what might come after. And right now, I'm uh, terribly uh, downbeat, if I like. I guess what has particularly made me downbeat as, as I looked at this was uh, talking to people, uh, particularly government officials from Costa Rica. Here's the country that's been long considered one of the most, and is not only considered, is one of the most successful countries in Latin America. People use words like Switzerland for, for Costa Rica. And suddenly people are telling me that they're terrified about this onrush of uh, crime and violence coming down uh, from Mexico. And all of a sudden, there's this great fear. And let me say, if Costa Rica doesn't have perfect institutions, who does? Uh, uh, but uh, certainly they're the strongest overwhelmingly in Central America, and yet they're seeing this uh, without over-dramatizing. Uh, dr it's sort of a rush of water when they know the levees aren't going to hold. Uh, this is uh, sort of the image that I got from speaking to so many in Costa Rica. And if they're not the rest of the... Uh, 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 Isthmus, the rest of Central America is going to have. Uh, let, let me say that uh, I think that, uh, you know, the democratic institutions, prospects, and territories are in danger in at least three of the countries, that what they call the Northern Triangle, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Uh, these these uh, are uh, these countries have institutions that have just been absolutely battered by criminality and violence up to now. Their economies are not in terribly good shape to boot. Uh, 
You look at them, they're importers of food and fuel. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, probably their most important benefactor at this time is Venezuela, and I hate to say that, uh, but it's been providing some benefits in terms of reduced fuel costs. Uh, and uh, they greatly suffer the contagion of the U.S. economic uh, problems, the recession. In other words, this is a region of the world that exports to the United States, tourism from the United States, remittances from the United States. These are, have been terribly battered on all fronts. Um, and right now, the Mexican drug cartels, this is all before the cartel, I talk about the cartels, have really pushed this to the brink. Uh, and and uh, even before the cartels, uh, and this is uh, maybe uh, four or five years they began to move into Central America in a, in a significant way, uh, the murder rates in Central America are among the highest in the world. Indeed, the, 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 the three countries, the Northern Triangle, have murder rates that are four or five times the murder rate of Mexico, to give you some example of the comparison. Uh, uh, in fact, the only countries that tend to compete with the Central America on that score are war-torn African countries. Uh, and uh, we've all read about the vicious gangs in uh, Prince George's and Montgomery County. Uh, well, they're a lot more vicious in Central America and uh, and they have really terrorized the population. Um, they are a remnant in part of the civil wars and the disruptions they cause, but they're also uh, related to the massive U.S. deportations of, of criminal felons into Central America. Um, let, let me uh, not go on with just describing it. The, uh, it's not only that crime is rife, uh, as one senior official in uh, Guatemala once mentioned to me, he says, Guatemala is a poster child for impunity. None of these crimes ever get solved. Uh, and certainly uh, the jails are full, uh, but nobody with any money influence really gets prosecuted for anything. Um, and it's not surprising that the Mexican drug uh, cartels found this such promising territory. Oops. Closer or further away did you want it? Closer, okay. Uh, uh, it's not, um, some want us to believe that somehow the drug cartels from Mexico are moving into Central America because they're being defeated in Mexico. That somehow this is an example, again, of some kind of weakening that they're looking outside of Mexico because they're being pressed by the military in Mexico, by the government, what have you. It could be true. I mean, I'm not inside this. I'm in their decision-making process. But let me say, my own guess would be more on the side that, look, this is a real opportunity. These are growing enterprises, the cartels. They're looking south. This was an easy place to set up shop. Uh, why not go offshore? Why not earn some more money? Why not take over some more territory? Another uh, place of safety. 
Uh, and uh, so I think it's probably much more uh, an example of just businesses looking for new opportunities rather than sort of any reflection on the situation per se in Mexico, although it would make sense to diversify even if they're not in terrible, uh, facing terrible uh, threats in Mexico. Um, let me just say that if there is any bright spot in all this is Central America's resilience. Those who followed the civil wars during the 80s know how far Central America seemed to come back. The uh, elections have become commonplace. Not all of them are free and fair and clean. Uh, democratic institutions are sprouting up. It's interesting before uh, uh, the coup d'etat in, in Honduras, the removal of president uh, before his term ended, was the first time in almost two decades that a president wasn't allowed to finish his term of office. Uh, elections, like I said, not always clean elections, but elections tend to determine. Uh, so there is at least some resilience. They came back from terrible times before, and who knows, they may do it again. Um, let me just quickly sort of look at what some of the responses are and why it makes me even, even less upbeat. Um, first, people talk about the need for a regional uh, response, that uh, if the country could somehow come together, uh, recognizing also the balloon effect that if they don't come together, that it's just going to move from one country to the other anyway. It's just very hard to imagine building a uh, you know, basketball team or a soccer team or what have you out of very weak individual players. In other words, coming together is not going to add very much to any single capacity of these countries uh, to deal with, with the drug problem. And indeed, it may even make it worse because they don't trust one another. They don't trust one another enough to share intelligence, to share information on criminal activity, et cetera. And I think that the emphasis that the international community gives to this regional approach is really a, a, a lost effort. I myself would much prefer seeing going to where you could make a difference, where you could be helpful, and, and working country by country, and until you begin to develop some capacity, police capacity, court systems, uh, prison systems that work even uh, 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 work at all. Uh, to talk about cooperation doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, another uh, solution that Ted uh, Carpenter mentioned was looking to Colombia. <laughs> Uh, everyone says, well, Colombia succeeded, why can't other countries? And the fact is there were two things about Colombia that were very helpful to Colombia's success, and one could argue whether it's a success or not. I think it was. Uh, one is it had huge amounts of money from outside the country. The U.S. provided something like $8 billion over a 10-year period. This was in addition to money coming from Europe, lesser but still significant, and Canada. There's nowhere near that amount of money available from outside. And Colombia starts off being a much richer country and was able, it had a much more effective army, much more effective institutions, 
and still Colombia is suffering. I mean, one has not a, quite emerged from it all. But it's just, uh, Colombia is probably not, and one other thing Colombia had uh, was really exceptional leadership. One can like President Oribe, dislike him, distrust him, but he certainly provided a level of leadership that's very rare, and nowhere in Central America do you see that level of leadership. Finally, uh, one can look to the United States. Um, uh, remember, Central America with, has about the same number of people uh, that Colombia does. If we could provide $800 million a year to Colombia per year, why not Central America? We're closer to Central America. We've had a free trade uh, agreement longer with Central America. Uh, but we know that that's not going to happen. The money is just not available now. Uh, uh, and um, I think the most important thing the U.S. could do, frankly, is uh, stop the deportations. If the U.S. could somehow suspend sending criminal felons that have spent three, five, eight, <coughs> ten years in U.S. prisons to Central America for some time, that's where a lot of the leadership for gangs in the region. That's about the best. The rest I don't see. I don't see uh, uh, cutting drug consumption of being doing much for Central America, <clears throat> at least in any kind of short run. Uh, I'm not going to talk about legalization simply because I, I see myself as too much of a realist to see that happening in any short period of time. Uh, maybe <clears throat> one could talk about legalizing marijuana as uh, Beto O'Rourke did. I, I see that. Uh, uh, in any event, thank you very much. Uh, this is the kind of problem that I hope that I have some ideas here. Thank you, Peter. That was excellent and on very short notice, so we really appreciate you coming in and talking. I just want to say one thing about Columbia. I can't help but editorialize. That's my job. Um, um, but you know, the idea that that we that there was that Colombia is a success, I think, has to be uh, looked at in terms of what was the goal. I mean, the initial goal of destroying this very beautiful country was to end cocaine trafficking. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't to regain territory and bring it back to a country that basically can deal with this criminal element. It was to end cocaine trafficking, and on that score, nothing was accomplished. I mean, there's still cocaine coming out of Colombia. There's a lot more coming out of Peru and Bolivia. Uh, the market is being su supplied in the U.S. Uh, prices haven't changed significantly. So to call Colombia a success, I think all we're saying is that we took a perfectly good country, we destroyed it, and then by pumping a lot of money in there, we kind of helped them get back up on their feet. But, uh, you know, <laughs> what was that exercise all about? I mean, you know, again certain elements like supply and demand. You know, there's just not a lot you can do about that when you have strong demand. Um, producers are going to find their consumers. Um, we have time for about, for a few questions. And um, so if you just uh, raise your hand, identify yourself, and also 
tell us who on the panel you're directing your uh, question to. Um, or if you want everybody on the panel to take a crack at it, that's fine too. Right here, sir. Yes, uh, John McKay and Mary, I would uh, request a presumption on the part of uh, Dr. Carpenter and Mr. O'Rourke that I'm rational, although I am from DEA. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I have a comment and an observation for uh, Dr. Carpenter. The observation is the Attorney General made that decision as far as the medical marijuana uh, business in California. And I'm not here to debate whether it was a good or bad decision. I will tell you the interagency discussion on that uh, was very interesting. But what I'd like to ask you to comment on is I think your, your argument is very rational, and I don't speak as a representative of DA, DEA when I say this. My question is, the modus operandi of putting those that legislation into effect in Montana, Colorado, California seems very haphazard and has been detrimental to whatever positive effort or whatever positive results could be held up and said, look, it works. Would you care to comment? Well, I think the, uh, the medical marijuana uh, initiatives have varied in quality and effectiveness from state to state. Uh, You've had some where the, the restrictions are, are fairly extensive, uh, but people who have certainly needed marijuana for medically legitimate reasons have had access to it. You've had, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, what occurred in California was, uh, if you will, covert uh, legalization of use and possession of small quantities of drugs. Um, and the... Uh, drug control bureaucracy, I think, became agitated about that and decided to move against it. I think that's why we saw the reversal of policy uh, compared to the first year or two of the Obama administration. We still have not confronted the, the fundamental issue in this country of just what we want in the way of drug policy. And I think that we're going to see that kind of drift and contradiction take place for a number of years yet. And at some point down the road, we will have that fundamental debate about what kind of policy we want, whether we're going to get a milder version of prohibition, uh, whether we're going to reinforce the strict version with all of its uh, costs and consequences, or whether we're going to move toward decriminalization or even further toward comprehensive legalization. I think that is going to be a very, very big topic in the coming decade. Thank you. Just for the record, I don't think anybody would uh, disagree that DEA agents um, are not rational. Yes. Uh, my name is Steve Hank, and I'm just a retired person who's interested in drug policy. Uh, I wanted to ask what the role, what role of Central America, particularly Honduras, since I have relatives in Honduras, what is their role in the drug trade? Are they producers? Do they transport? Is it just a place for a safe haven for drug dealers to go? Um, it, it's not clear to me at all what what role Central America, particularly Honduras, plays in this in this drug war? 
I, I think it's largely a transiting role, but I'll, I'll have uh, Peter uh, address that. Well, I think Mary got it right. It's, uh, one should look at a map and see how close uh, Central America is to the United States. In fact, Ronald Reagan said it was only 32 hours to uh, oh, it was Managua from uh, the uh, southern border of the United States. So they're really neighbors. If I could add, uh, it's been very much a transit function although it's beginning to shift a little bit. Uh, an expert in one of the Central American countries described it as a transition from being a transit country to being a warehouse, and that implies something a bit different. Um, in any case, the, the cartels certainly are extending greater and greater control. Uh, the best estimates now in Guatemala, and even the, uh, the president of Guatemala has conceded this, that the cartels <coughs> exercise uh, considerable control over at least a third of the territory. Some estimates are as much as half of the territory of the country. Yeah, the Hondurans have complained that um, a lot of shipments come uh, by way of Venezuela. Uh, the National Guard in Venezuela is involved in the drug trafficking business. That's why when Peter said that uh, Venezuela has been helping Central America, I thought, yeah, in more ways than one because um, <laughs> Uh, certainly, a lot of the politicians in Central America have good relations with Venezuela, and, and there's, uh, there's a transiting route that goes that way. Yes, over there in the corner, on the side. This gentleman, yeah. Thank you, Eric Sterling from the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation. I'm curious of all the panelists, how would you characterize the potential role of the business community in the various countries you've commented on to uh, perhaps take a leadership role in uh, looking for a way forward out of this mess. All of you spoke about the size of, of the size of the economies, the size of the uh, drug trade. All of the businesses are being hurt. Uh, their business community, their uh, ability to do business is hurt by corruption and violence. Um, and uh, I'm curious sort of if whether or not in trying to find um, uh, factors that, that would be capable of taking a leadership role if you think business might be able to do that. Um, do we, let's just go down there. You want to start, Ted? I, I, I must admit that uh, I uh, just don't know enough to really respond in any significant way. I, I mean, I don't know what their capacity is, what their interest is. They're, they, they, they're using private guards. I think private guards exceed public uh, police officers now in Central America by a significant factor. Uh, so they're sort of finding ways to deal with the situation. Uh, I, I don't know what they could do, frankly. Again, I think there's a distinction between uh, the situation in Central America where the business communities are considerably weaker and feel, frankly, under siege right now, that this, uh, uh, this new presence puts uh, their livelihoods and, in many cases, their safety at risk. In Mexico, uh, there's, there's a mixture of attitudes. Uh, there's certainly a portion of the legitimate business community that would just wish that the violence subsides. They don't particularly care if the drugs continue <laughs> to flow into the United States. As far as they are concerned, that is a problem for the United States and for uh, consumers in this country. What bothers them 
is the disruption and the corruption that uh, takes place because of the current situation. Uh, so they're agnostic, I guess, when it comes to the ethics of prohibition. They don't, they don't particularly care if it be legal or illegal. What they want to see is a dramatic drop in the violence and instability in their country. Beto, can you comment on the business community and what is in El Paso? Yeah, as I pointed out earlier, about 20% of all U.S.-Mexico trade passes through the ports of entry between uh, El Paso and Juarez. So if Juarez truly fails, and it's a miracle uh, that as the deadliest city in the world, bar none, uh, that it hasn't failed already, but if it truly fails, uh, El Paso uh, will also fail. Uh, and you could make a really strong argument that it would uh, devastate a significant part of the uh, private sector that's dependent on U.S.-Mexico trade, especially through that, that corridor. So in talking to, to business leaders on both sides of the border and those who were previously headquartered in Juarez <coughs> now, for the most part, live in El Paso, Texas, making it easier to talk to them. But in talking to these people, they, they I would echo what Ted said, they, they just understand that the violence must stop if El Paso Juarez is going to be a, comp a competitive uh, region in North America, if it's going to be competitive when you look at opportunities like China. And I think they're open to the possibility of uh, the end of marijuana prohibition being part of the solution. And I'll just make a, a quick uh, comment that El Paso was one of the first communities in the United States to prohibit marijuana at the start of the 20th century. Uh, we were one of the first cities at the beginning of the 21st century to make the point that the emperor has no clothes. Uh, and I think that we, and that means the business community in Ciudad Juarez and uh, El Paso, could become leaders on this issue and make it more politically possible uh, for the United States and Mexico to make some of the tough decisions that these two countries need to make. Yes, right here. Eric Ham with the 12 Project. My question is for you, Mr. O'Rourke. I'm curious uh, if you could talk a little bit about uh, the congressional delegation from Texas, and we, we all recognize that if this is going to change, then members of Congress are going to have to uh, make the changes. And I'm curious as <coughs> to uh, their thoughts on this, and if, if their <coughs> thoughts reflect those of Mr. Reyes. And also, can you talk a little bit about what uh, you all are doing at the uh, state level? Do uh, members of the state legislature also feel the same way that Mr. Reyes feel? And can you talk a little bit about what you all are doing to try to change uh, those thoughts and minds that are taking place there? You know, just to answer the last question first, when we were threatened with the loss of federal funding in 2009 when we adopted the resolution asking for an open and honest debate on the drug war issue, um, not only were we threatened by the U.S. Congressman, but the entire state delegation, with the exception of our state senator, uh, Senator Shapley, also weighed in and said that uh, we would lose out on important uh, state funding and state political uh, opportunity. So it was really a full court press in, in 2009. Um, and I feel like with Sylvester Reyes especially, we had a blown opportunity. As Mary pointed out, it's probably going to take a, a true conservative or someone who's viewed as a true conservative um, to advocate a more rational response to uh, the mayhem that we have in El Paso and Juarez. And Sylvester Reyes was a 25-year veteran of the Border Patrol. He was Border Patrol sector chief. He was at that point the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. You know, what better person to say, I understand the security argument, I understand the nature of the border, 
uh, and I've come to the realization that what we're doing today, uh, $1 trillion later after the, the war on drugs was declared, is not making drugs any less available to our kids, uh, is causing the deaths of almost 10,000 people now in our neighboring city of Ciudad Juarez, and threatens the very economy and basis for uh, life on the El Paso Juarez border. And obviously, he, he chose to go the other way, perhaps because of his law enforcement uh, background. So I, I think we could not have a more regressive uh, leadership at a time where we need somebody who truly understands that we need to take a, an, alternate, an alternate approach uh, to, to what's happening in, in El Paso. So we'll, we'll see, uh, but, I, but I think there is a sea change, uh, and, and I think that, that that change in policy is going to follow very soon. One thing I didn't mention is that um, Beto is, is running to represent, uh, to unseat Congressman Reyes and, uh, in the primary right now, so. Yes, this lady in the back. Ashley Marks from Cato. It's been argued by some that were drugs to be legalized, the cartels would fight back in a way far more horrific than their activities currently are. Is that something to be of concern? Ken, do you want to? No, it would be hard to imagine the cartels uh, being much more vicious, much more violent than they have been in recent years. Uh, certainly, they would regard legalization as a threat. I have no doubt about that. Uh, something we discussed uh, briefly last night at our dinner, that what we have, I, th I think, in terms of support for the war on drugs has been what uh, political scientists have described as the bootlegger Baptist coalition, where you get the, the law enforcement bureaucracy and other people who are ideologically committed to waging a vigorous war on drugs as one pillar of support, and the others uh, covertly, uh, for obvious reasons, would be the organizations that are profiting from the current prohibitionist strategy. And that means the, uh, the organizations that now control the drug trade. If you propose full legalization, you threaten their uh, revenue flows in a very, very big way. Now, I want to emphasize because, again, sometimes advocates of legalization are accused of saying legalization is going to be a panacea. This is not going to get rid of organized crime. Getting rid of alcohol prohibition did not eliminate organized crime in the United States. Legalizing currently illegal drugs would not eliminate organized <coughs> crime in Mexico and, and completely destroy the cartels. But it would greatly reduce the financial resources available to them. It would weaken their power. They are very smart people. They understand that. So legalization is regarded as uh, certainly a threat to their power. Um, how they would react to try to prevent legalization, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure we know exactly what their response would be. Any other questions? Yes, over here. I'm Ana Maria Trujillo. Uh, I'm a master's student in Georgetown University. And 
I wanted more than a question. I had a comment about Colombia's success because, as you said, we like I'm from Colombia and we keep on on exporting a lot of drugs to the United States, but also the violence is it's rising in Medellin, who who has been this one of the most striking cities by violence, is reaching to 94 deaths, to 94 deaths per every 100,000 inhabitants again in 2009. When it, had, when it had reduced its debts in 2007, 2005. So, so I, what I'm trying to say is I'm not really sure about Colombia's success around the, the drugs. Thank you. Was there another question back there? Yeah. Uh, Morgan Fox, Marijuana Policy Project. Uh, this is sort of related to your question over here. Um, well, uh, it's definitely true that legalizing drugs would not completely defund organized crime. Uh, many people argue that just legalizing marijuana would have practically no effect, even though uh, marijuana sales account for almost 60% of the cartel's revenue. Uh, my question is, uh, how much would they be able to realistically recoup those losses, given that the markets for cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamines are already fairly saturated, and that uh, other uh, revenue streams, such as kidnapping and extortion, are less profitable and tend to erode public support. If I, if I could address that, first of all, uh, the 60% figure is simply one estimate, uh, and this is an inherent problem when you're trying to assess the scope and composition of an entirely illegal industry. Uh, the low-end estimate has been about uh, 8.5 to 10% of uh, Mexican cartel revenues coming from marijuana sales. The high end is 60 percent. Most of the estimates are in the area of 20 to 30 percent. Um, I would certainly suggest if there's a hesitation about comprehensive legalization, and obviously there is, at least starting with marijuana, what is indisputably the least harmful drug. Let's see how that goes in terms of uh, the effect on the cartels, and also whether uh, the parade of horrors that the drug warriors always trot out in terms of uh, soaring consumption uh, would come to pass. The excellent study that Glenn Greenwald did on the uh, drug policy reforms in Portugal certainly suggests that that uh, parade of horrors, the soaring consumption, is largely an illusion, that that would not happen. Well, again, we could at least take that first step. It's not going to do any harm in terms of the effect on the Mexican cartels. It may have a modest impact. It may only have a slight impact. But it would be a worthwhile first step if we're not prepared to bite the bullet and really do what is necessary, and that is end drug prohibition, period. Um, we're out of time for this session, but I want to uh, ask you to join me in thanking our panelists. Ian, Ian, are we taking a break now? Yes, we're taking a break now. Thank you very much. <laughs>